And with that, we're going to have Justin Kellum come up and read our passage this morning. We're going to be in John 13 at the very end of that passage in there, starting in verse 36. It's on page 900 in the Black Bibles in front of you. And if you will, please stand as we give reverence to God's Word and read it together. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work, His works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son, If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. God, you are compassionate, you are gracious, you are slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness to us and to us who do not deserve it. So we come to you this morning in anticipation of what you're going to do amidst us as we look into your precious word. We thank you for speaking truth into our lives that can be an anchor to our soul. So I do pray that you would hold us fast this morning, guide us into truth, let us know you as the only way to the Father. I pray that your name would be exalted and lifted up in this place, in our hearts and in our midst. It's in the name of Jesus that I pray, amen. You guys can have a seat. If you guys don't know me, my name's Rich. I am one of the pastors here. Glad to have you all. Way to be brave and uh, get out here amidst the uh, icy roads. I was a little worried that it might just be me and the Santinis kind of coming to uh, have a little Bible study this morning, but uh, you guys uh, got out there and uh, made it in, so uh, glad to see you all. We are going to be looking at John chapter 14 this morning, John chapter 14, verses 1 through 14, and let me just ask you as as we get going here. Who in here likes moving? You know, moving. 
It's a great experience, right? And I know that a lot of us have moved quite a bit in the past few years. The reason I know is because I've helped many of you. Some of you maybe have, have moved recently into town from another place, trying to get settled. But uh, we are in a, a demographic where there's a lot of moving going on. And that's a, a big push for Life Group. Uh, if, if, you, if you're thinking about joining Life Group, one of the best things about Life Group is the fact that when you need to move, you have a lot of people to help you move. However, on the downside, one of the worst things about being in Life Group is the fact that you get asked to move people a lot. <laughs> but we are, we are a people that oftentimes moves, shifts locations. Um, this wasn't true early on in my life. Uh, I grew up actually in the same home from the time I was about four years old till I was about 18. Same little tiny house for, for all those years. But then after I got married, we moved around quite a bit in the first 10 years of our marriage. Uh, we, we started out, got married just outside of Boston, lived there for just a couple months in these people's kind of basement area. Then we moved out to Grand Junction, Colorado, lived uh, in this, this really small apartment for, for about 10, 11 months, and I decided, oh, I'm going to go back to school, so I'm going to move back out east. We went to northeastern Pennsylvania, where we lived in a, a two different places for the time that we were there. Then we, we relocated and came back out to Colorado, settled in Fort Collins, and now we, we are in our third place that we've moved into since we moved here. And a year ago, we were able to buy the home that we were living in and actually able to have our own place. And so I am at this point kind of sick of moving. I feel like I want to I want to be settled for a little bit of time at least. And and it feels good to finally finally know that this is going to be our home that we can that we can settle in. And when you establish a place like that, isn't it isn't it so nice to just come home? You know, when you move into a place and you you finally set up your own furniture, you finally get your decorations on the wall. You know, you, you kind of start to know where things are at because you put them where you want them. Your house even starts to begin to smell like you, which as I'm realizing with four boys isn't always the most pleasant thing. But it, but it just takes on your identity, your personality, your family. It's there. It's, it's your home. And when, anytime you've been gone from home, even on a trip, even staying in nice places, isn't it always good just to come back home? There's something about being home. It's comfortable. It's familiar. It just feels right. And throughout Scripture, God's people are often seen as those who haven't quite found a home. They are, as Peter writes in his letter, they are strangers, sojourners, exiles. And from the time that Adam and Eve were cast from the garden... Mankind has constantly been seeking to get back home. And Jesus, in this passage, speaks to his disciples amidst rising emotional turmoil that has captured them. And it's been brought about because of the things that Jesus has been telling them. And in this passage, he speaks about this house, this house that they will one day move into and how he is going to help them find it. And Jesus, in this passage, even to us today, speaks words of hope to us while we wait to get home. And he does this in two ways. Just as we look through the passage, there's two main points that we land on. First, we see that he gives a remedy for a troubled heart. And then he goes forward in, in, in verses 12 through 14 and shows the motivation to move forward. And so we start by seeing this remedy for a troubled heart. What is happening here? What is the setting? We know that this is the upper room discourse, as it's known. 
as Aaron, as Aaron kind of opened up and introduced this, this is this intimate setting where Jesus is gathered with just his disciples, and he has these intimate conversations with them. But his disciples are troubled. They are bothered. Some things that Jesus has just said has them unsettled. He has said in, in chapter 13, we looked previously, that he, he, he speaks of how he is going to be going away. He's not, he's not going to be around. They're not going to be able to come with him. He also revealed to them that one of his own, one of their inner circle is going to betray him. Peter, trying to combat all this, is, as he says in the end, it says, God, I want to come with you. I'm going to even die for you. And Jesus says, actually, Peter, you're going to deny me. And so you could just feel the tension in the room. They're bothered, they're distressed. This is Jesus, their leader, the one that they have, they've gone all in with, the one that they have committed everything to, is telling them these things. He's not supposed to just leave. And so they are, they are distraught, they are, they are troubled in their heart, their emotions, their fears, uncertainty, distress that has gripped them. They are emotionally distraught. But Jesus tells his disturbed disciples, don't let your heart be troubled. But he says, if you trust God, if you depend on God, then trust also in me. But why should they trust him? Why should we trust him? Why should we cast it all on this man? But Jesus doesn't just leave them with this open command of, hey, hey, just, just trust me. You know, I'll take care of it. Sometimes I tell my wife that whenever we're worried about something or whatever, hey, hey babe, just trust me. And just kind of leave it like that. And it doesn't always, doesn't always, you know, calm her emotions. She needs to know why. Why can I trust you? How are you going to take care of it? What are you going to do? He says, trust me. But he doesn't leave them with just this open command, but he gives them reasons to plant their flag of faith with Jesus. And our belief isn't just in this, this idea of God out there that, oh, God's going to take care of us in some sense. But our faith is in a God who came and revealed himself in a person. And we aren't called to walk in blind and empty faith, but faith that has a personal object who has given us clear promises. And this is good news because we have much to be troubled by. We live in a troubled world. All of us could spend all day just sharing the things that have troubled our lives that even now we are experiencing. And Jesus is, is, is offering some sense of hope for this. He says you don't have to have a troubled heart. So how can we find peace, calm, tranquility in this troubled world? He gives these three reasons. First, he says the Father's house has room for you. Jesus introduces this image of his father's house, this dwelling place of God. This is clearly a reference and a display of heaven where God dwells. And Jesus specifies that this is no ordinary home, but it is a massive house with many rooms. Some translations I, uh, use the word many mansions, which uh, the way we think of mansions doesn't, original, it doesn't have the same meaning as that word originally did. But this is, this is the idea of, 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 a, of a dwelling with many different rooms and places in it, a, a palace, if you will, with suites and other houses that are almost embedded inside of it. This huge dwelling has room. 
You will not find lack of accommodation in God's house. And he moves forward and he, says, he gives this as a personalized promise. He says that he is preparing a place for you. Yes, he's speaking directly to his disciples, but he is speaking to those who follow him. All in throughout this text, it is those who believe in him who these promises are for. For you who trust in Jesus, this promise is granted, is guaranteed. This promise of a, of a room in God's house. He has a place for you. And this reality, however far out there, however hard to really get our heads around this idea of this heavenly reality, is given to us as a comfort. He is trying to comfort his disciples. And it is a comfort to, comfort to us amidst loss, as Daniel just said, that Joey's going to offer this, this grief group. And part of grieving as a Christian is, is the, the, the hope that we have in the resurrection. And for those that we've lost who, who are united to Christ, there's this hope that is a sure foundation. But there's this comfort that is found in the reality that this age is not our final and true home. What's important to know in this passage is that Jesus does not say that there is no trouble. He doesn't say that there is no trouble, but don't let your heart be troubled. Because the trouble that we face is very real. It doesn't mean that we we won't have to actually walk through difficulty, walk through loss, walk through grief, walk through pain. But we don't have to be ruined by it. We don't have to be incapacitated by it. We can let these promises that are out there take root now here to provide stability, support, and encouragement and hope as we walk through the trouble. So we must not forget that this is not our true home. So whatever trouble you find yourself in, no matter how challenging of life you've endured, no matter how bad of a hand you feel like you've been dealt, this is not the end game. There is the rock-solid hope of dwelling eternally in the Father's house. This also means for us that we must not seek to make this our true home. Have you ever moved into somewhere that you knew you weren't going to be there very long? Maybe it was that kind of first kind of starter apartment. Maybe it was a transitional place as you were moving to a new city. Maybe as you were waiting for, for your house to, to get completed or a deal to close, you had to find some place temporarily to live. What was that time like, trying to live there just for a season? I used, to, I used to do work up in Casper, uh, Wyoming during the summers with a buddy of mine that did landscaping. And he basically would, we, we'd, he had this, uh, it was kind of like a, a mobile trailer that was put out on this like 40-acre lot somewhere, and we would just like kind of sleep there basically. But when we, we, when we moved in there, it's not like we, we put anything on the walls, we didn't unpack boxes, we didn't put flowers on the table. We basically lived out of a, out of a plastic tub and a, and a big backpacking backpack all summer. We weren't going to be there very long. We weren't settling in. 
We weren't there. But, but have, you, have you ever felt that? Have you ever experienced that? It's like, why unpack everything? We're just going to be here for a short time. Just kind of get out what we need for now and use it until we can go on to where we're actually going to live. So as you view your life, as we view this world, this age in which we find ourselves in, do you find yourself settling into your metaphorical dream home? Or do you see yourself living in a temporary apartment? We have room in the Father's house that is waiting for us, so we can't get too comfortable here. Whatever we find here will pale in comparison to what the Father's house is going to be like. So there is a call to not settle for this age, not try to find ultimate satisfaction and purpose in this time. Because the Father's house has room for us. He moves on to say that Jesus is actually going to get us there. He is going to get us home. Jesus is a sure way home. If Jesus goes to prepare a room, then you can bet for sure that he is going to come back and bring us to himself. He's going to return and he is going to bring us to be with him forever. And let's not over-literalize this metaphor in thinking that this, this heavenly reality and this eternal dwelling is some kind of evacuation from this world, as if we're going to go live in some kind of glittering mansion in the clouds that we just can't get our head around that just doesn't, frankly, sound all that appealing. But Jesus' return and his gathering us to himself, as we see as it's displayed and declared throughout all of the Bible, is about God recreating this world a new heavens and a new earth, the establishment of his kingdom here where God comes to dwell in a new creation with us. And Jesus is going to make sure that that happens. But then Jesus kind of throws out this really odd statement to his disciples. He says, and you guys even know the way to where I am going. And he throws this out there. And you got to love Thomas, right? Thomas, I think he's often a misunderstood disciple. He's often kind of viewed as this doubting guy that never believes. You know, he's not almost not a true follower. I think he's just honest. You know, I I think he's I think he's like many of us. He's just he's just honest. He's like, yeah, I I need to see. I need. I'm struggling. I need. I need to understand this. And I love Thomas's response because Jesus says this, and and Thomas, miss everybody else. They're they're all probably sitting there like. I don't know what Jesus is talking about. I have no idea where he's going or anything, but nobody's going to say anything, right? But Thomas speaks up and says, hey, uh, actually, I don't know what you're talking about. You ever get in those conversations with someone where they kind of just talk about something as if, as if obviously you should know what, what's being said or what they're talking about? And uh, you're always stuck with whether you should be like, uh, I have no idea what you're saying. Uh, can you explain that for me? Or if you just kind of pretend and go along with it, kind of act like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking about. This oftentimes happens to me with, uh, with maybe like car guys, you know, that uh, they, they're all jazzed up about, you know, the, the new thing that they put in their car. It's like, yeah, I took out this carburetor and I got this, this new XP7000, you know, uh, fuel-infused, you know, thing that I put in, and that, that baby really purrs. And I'm like, yeah, awesome. Yeah, oh, yeah, that's, that sounds great. You should see my minivan outside. It's like, it's got these seats that go in, and it's, it's awesome. Well, we've all been there, right? Where, where you don't want to ask that dumb question, right? You should know, obviously. You should know about this. But Thomas, 
just is honest and says, Jesus, look, we have no idea where you're going. We have no idea what you're talking about. So how on earth can we possibly know the way there? And Jesus drops this line, and he reveals that, Thomas, you you know better than you know. And he drops this line to Thomas with this absolute clarity where he says, Thomas, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father, no one gets into the Father's house except through me. Jesus unequivocally says, you want to get into the Father's house, then, you have to, then I have to take you. You don't have to discover the roadmap. You have to unite yourself to me. You don't have to jump through all the right hoops to get there. I am preparing the way for you as I head across. You don't have to embark on some pilgrimage, but I will come and get you. And all throughout this this gospel, Jesus has been saying, I am going to work this out in your life. I am going to do this for you. I am going to claim you as my own. I am going to accomplish redemption in your life. And I am going to secure this for you. You have to be united to Jesus. You have to follow him. If you're trying to be good enough, if you're working hard to clean up your act so that you can be received striving to figure everything out so you have all the answers to life, Jesus is saying this, look to me. I am the way to address the wickedness of your heart and reconcile you to God. I am the one who can give you truth, who can be the answer to explain everything, to make sense of all of this. He says, I am the one in whom you can actually find soul-satisfying life. And aren't these three things just really what everyone is looking for? We're all looking for the way, for purpose. Why are we here? Where are we going? What's this all about? What's this all for? Jesus says he is the way. He is the one that will show you the purpose. Truth. Aren't we all looking for truth? And as much as our progressive minds are are trying to, to show and make us believe that all truth is relative and you basically just have to find your own truth, whatever your own truth is, you just have to find that. At the end of the day, doesn't that just not sit well? Because at the end of the day, don't we know for a fact that one plus one still equals two? And there's something in us that just says there has to be an answer, something that makes sense of all of this. And Jesus says, I am the truth that you seek. I am the one that makes sense of everything, of the whole story. And he is the life. Isn't that the longing of every person? We want to live, right? We want to live, experience life. That's why that uh, cliche phrase has been thrown around, YOLO, right? You only live once, right? Right? Make the most of it. Get everything you can out of it. We got to live. Don't want to waste time with jobs and all this other stuff. You got to live. That's what we want. That's what we long for. Jesus actually says, you live twice. He says, you want to have true life, then come to me and die and be raised to new life. And you will find life that will satisfy you forever. 
He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. He is the sure way to get us home to the Father's house. He then goes on and says that the Son and the Father are in this together. They are committed to this. And Jesus continues to lay a foundation for their faith by revealing once again that His plan and purpose is in complete union with the Father. And chapter 14 just gives this clear presentation of the persons of the Trinity working in union. Jesus says, if you had known me, you would have known the Father. From now on, you do know the Father, and you have seen him. Then we get Philip. And I just, I just love the disciples' responses in this, in this passage. Can't you just relate with these guys? Philip speaks up, and he says, Lord, that sounds awesome. That sounds great. Go ahead, show us the Father. Let us see this. And that's enough for us. That will do it. We will be fully convinced. We'll have seen what we need to see. That would be enough for us. What would be enough for you? What is it that you say to God that you need? Just do this and then I'm good. Do this and then I will have sure faith. Answer this question, give me this sign, act in this way, and then I will believe. And Jesus responds to Philip, both in it with, with kind of an emotion of, 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 of sadness, but also compassion, where he says, Philip, why are you saying this? How do you not know? I have already shown you. I've already shown you the Father, look at me. You're not going to get any clearer than that. You don't need another sign. You don't need some other experience. You have Jesus. So believe and trust in Jesus because Jesus can be trusted because he is just like his Father. He says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So guys, what's the problem? Is it that you simply don't believe? Jesus then says, the words I say, they're not on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. The Father is working through the Son and through his words to reveal himself and accomplish his purposes. So Jesus says, fellas, believe me. Believe in me and who I am. And he says, if, if that's not quite enough, believe in the works that have been accomplished, everything that I have done, both my miracles and every act that I have done with you, believe in them. So here's the simple plea. But it's a challenging plea. The plea is simply believe. Believe. Choose to have faith in Jesus. Stake it all with him, and he will come through for you. Like I said before, this this belief is in a person, not merely a concept. The remedy for trouble is to trust. But it's not trust in just some abstract sense, but it's rooted in knowledge and belief about Jesus. So the question is, do you know Jesus? Jesus twice in this passage challenges his disciples on the depth of their knowledge of 
of him. In verse 7, he says, if you had known me. And then in verse 9, he says to Philip, I've been with you so long and you still don't know me. You only trust someone you know. Trust is born and built out of knowledge. Think about the people you trust in your life. You trust them because you know them. You know their character, who they are. Trust at times can be born out of desperation. When you have nowhere else to turn. And some of you maybe have come to Jesus out of desperation. But now, as a call to build your faith, to, to, to be solidified in, in who He is, there's this call to know Him, to understand who He is, what He is like. This is why we've been looking at the Gospel of John, to see Jesus as the bread of life, the light of the world, the good shepherd who cares for His own. Do we know Jesus? Deeply, intimately, do we look at the Word and go to the Word to understand Him, to see Him, to, to, to cling to Him? Because Jesus seems to be saying that the disciples' emotional distress is at some level a failure to believe, to believe something about Him, of what He's doing. So how do we take these, these truths, this idea of, of, our, of our eternal home, And how do we speak them into the everyday stuff of life? The challenges with our children, struggles in our marriages, the difficulties in relationship with work, career, direction. Where does it hit at that level? Well, first we need to grow to learn to let truth, the words of Jesus, His promises, direct our emotions. We cannot let our emotions and just how we feel on any, any given moment or anything control and dictate how we view truth. We have to look to truth and let that direct our emotions. It doesn't just wipe away our emotions. Our emotions are real and they're raw and they, they need to be addressed, but they need to be spoken into through Scripture. It means that we grow in what we often refer to as preaching the gospel to ourselves. See, gospel promises and realities are not merely forward-looking. They're not just end-time promises of heaven, but they are, there are present realities that the gospel provides here and now that we have to understand our identity, what Christ has done in us. It's growing to understand our union with Christ, as Matt Whitney spoke on just a couple weeks ago, to understand what it means to be united in Christ and how that shapes our day-to-day life. It starts with knowing who Jesus is, what he has done, our new identity that he has given us, and the home that he is preparing for us. He offers this remedy, this hope, these promises to guard against a troubled heart, even though we walk through troubling times. But he doesn't just stop there. And just say, okay, guys, just don't, don't be worried. I'll take care of it in the end. You know, just stop worrying. He also gives them motivation to move forward. And this passage ends with this, with this challenge and this call. He gives this motivation to not be unsettled, but rather move forward confidently. They don't need to be shattered or stressed out about his departure, and here's why. Because he says, those who believe in Jesus will do the works that Jesus does. Jesus' followers, the text explicitly says, those who believe in him. 
He's not limiting this only to disciples. This is for everyone who believes in Jesus. It says we'll do the works that Jesus does. So Jesus gives them divine purpose. Our time of waiting for our final home is not meaningless. But Jesus has called us to live with purpose. So if you struggle with the purpose of it all, why do we do the same old grind called life day in and day out? Why do we put up with it all? Then these words are for you. They're for us. Jesus says, I am leaving you to do my works. We have purpose in this trouble. So the natural question is, what are the works that Jesus did? Certainly we see his, his, his miracles are, are in view at some level. But are we all going to do all the miracles? No. So what is, it, what is he saying? Verse 11 speaks of the works that Jesus did as the things that Jesus did that serve as signs of who Jesus is and should result in belief in him. So the works should produce belief. So we could say, that his works were the things that Jesus said and did that revealed his identity and his saving purposes. Therefore, we endure his works through the things that we say or do that point people to Jesus as Savior and God. So what did Jesus tell his disciples just a few verses earlier? How are you going to show the world that you're Jesus' followers? By the way that you love one another. When we love in a way that points others to Jesus, we are continuing his work. What did Jesus commission his followers right before he left? He said, go into the world and make disciples. That is how the church continues the work of Jesus. Jesus is saying that all believers are marked by this. They will be so united to Jesus that they will carry on his work by his power and do the kinds of things that bear witness about Jesus. They will point people to Jesus and through Jesus to the Father. You see, we have been ushered into this great redemptive story. It's not just about our story and our own individual life that we're trying to create. God has actually ushered us up into his redemptive story to play as key characters in his narrative. To actually finish and carry on the work that he started through his people. This is something to challenge us, to encourage us, to motivate us, to be excited about. Jesus then doubles down. On this, and he says, You won't just do the works that I do, but you're going to do greater works than these. So, what does that mean? What does it mean that we're going to do greater works than Jesus? The key to understanding this is how he says this phrase, Because I am going to the Father. So, in some sense, his departure to the Father is the grounds for their accomplishing the greater works. So in what sense are they greater? I don't think they're greater in kind or maybe display of power. It's going to be pretty hard to one-up Jesus, right? You know, how are you going to one-up kind of walking on water? How are you going to one-up raising someone from the dead? I don't think we're going to do greater than that in kind. But I think what he means is this. 
that they are greater in their extent, how far-reaching they will be, and in their nature because the redemptive age has dawned. The work of Jesus' disciples will be carried out in a new era of salvation history. Our message, unlike that of, say, the Old Testament prophets, is not done looking towards the Messiah's coming, but it is done in light of the finished work of Jesus. And therefore, it is done in the victorious power of the gospel and the empowering presence of the Spirit. That is how we will do greater works. So just think of how the gospel has spread. The message that started in this small upper room with maybe 120 followers that were kind of shaky followers at that point, weren't sure what they were going to do, kind of hiding, hunkering down, is how it all started. So we see as, as the gospel is proclaimed, the Spirit is poured out, and we see this spontaneous expansion of the church. All throughout Acts, we see churches started, gospel growth, lives converted, people transformed. And we can follow church history to the massive missionary expansion of the gospel through much of Europe, all through Great Britain, eventually arriving over in these lands. We can look back to the revivals of the Great Awakenings in the 17 and 1800s, to the pursuit of foreign missions to distant lands like India, Africa, and China through men like William Carey, David Livingston, Hudson Taylor. And still today, as God is spreading His gospel through His people, through the church, to every corner of the world, to every tribe, every people, every culture, greater works than Jesus are continuing to be done. We just spoke with Freddie this past week, who, who was a pastor in the Czech Republic who we partner with. We're seeing the gospel change lives in the Czech Republic around the world. After almost being snuffed out by a communist reign, churches are growing, are being planted, networks are starting. Men and women are being raised up to teach and lead in these churches. Greater works are being done in our own city, on our campus. As students from here proclaim the gospel as ministries like Navigators and Crew and, and, and Fellowship of Christian Athletes go out and try to, try to invest and, and connect with students from all over the world. Greater works are done in your lives as you love your neighbor well by shoveling their sidewalk, as you care for the single mom down the street. As you bring a meal to someone who just had a baby, or maybe someone who just had a rough day. When you reach out in love like Jesus did, sacrificing your time and your resources to serve others. When you humble yourselves and wash other people's feet in service to the community and to others. When we love and direct our children to Jesus. When we seek reconciliation in our relationships, in our marriages, in our own heart, in our own life, as we love like Jesus, as we serve like Jesus, and most importantly, as we proclaim the gospel and the glory of God through Jesus' name, we and God through us is accomplishing greater works than Jesus. But it's not because of us, it's not because we're awesome. But because Jesus has ascended to the Father, 
He is victorious over sin and death, and He has, as we will see in the next week, He has sent His Spirit to us to comfort us and to empower us in this work. And the final challenge is that we also have motivation because of the promise of prayer. He has this final statement that He says, whatever you ask in My name, I will do it so that God will be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I'm going to do it. He gives this, he gives this hope, this promise. But we sit there and say, ah, all, my, all my prayers are not really answered. Not answered the way I would desire, at least. So, so what does he mean? And I think there's two keys to understanding and, and really grasping what Jesus is saying. First of all, he says that if you pray in my name, this is not just some magical chant, something that we slap on our prayers that then guarantees that we get what we want. But to pray in Jesus' name is a declaration of desire for our will to line up with the person and purposes of Jesus. And the key phrase being, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So the question is, do you run your prayers through the grid of God's glory? When you pray, when you ask God for something Are you asking because you want God to be glorified? Or you're asking so you can be glorified? Why do you ask God? How do you ask God? Do you want His will to be accomplished? Do you want His purposes to take root in your life and in this world? And is it for the glory of God? Is it that which we most desire? Because that is the key to effective prayers, for Jesus stepping in and answering and saying, I will accomplish that. I will accomplish that which glorifies and lifts up and magnifies my Father. If you ask anything in my name, he will do it. So we see this, this remedy is offered, this remedy for a troubled heart is offered, and this motivation this purpose that we have been given that should captivate our lives. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 to 16, speaking of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it says this of them. It says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. We have a home waiting for us. A place that once we enter it, we will know for certain that we are home. It will just feel right. We will know it when we are there. See, we were not made for this age, but we should be those who desire a heavenly city. Other Christians have spoken of it as a a holy discontent. So while we wait for Jesus to get us home, we don't simply sit here mindlessly just waiting for him to come back. But we have work to do. We've been entrusted with this great commission to do the works of Jesus and greater works than these. So let's not settle for anything less. 
Let us claim these promises as a remedy for a troubled heart, and let us move confidently forward in this amazing mission that God is accomplishing through us. Let's pray to him this morning. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in the midst of trouble, you are there. In the midst of difficulty, you are there. And you offer us these promises of hope that should not just stay out there ahead of us, but they should reach back in here and now and give us stability and give us hope, knowing that you are the way, you are the truth, and you are the life. So we look to you this morning, asking that you would change our hearts. Let us love you above all things. Let your name be glorified, and it is in the name of Jesus Christ, for your purposes, for your will to be done, that we pray. Amen.